This is Matt. And this is Tony. And this is What Did We Miss? The podcast where we explore our pop culture blind spots one episode at a time. Do you ever notice that when I say that, um, and we're still recording remotely, but when, when I say that, that I don't, I look away. Like I don't look directly into the camera and look right at you while I say that. Because I still... Do you have cue cards? A couple of years later, I'm still like... Hedging my bets, making sure I don't fuck it up. Yeah, and we've made it easier. Uh, yeah, uh, but yeah, I'm just a, you know, I'm just a fuck up. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. no, no, no. I no. mean, I've always uh, said that about you. Yeah, uh, that's my bio. If you go to the podcast website, it says, just a fuck up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mine says massive turd. Just a fuck up and a massive turd. That's us. Together, who knows what they're doing? Uh, what did we miss is actually, uh, that's an anagram for just a fuck up and massive turd. That's how we came up with the name of the podcast. Don't think about it. Don't do the work, though. It's not a mystery you need to solve. Trust us. That's all. So, big news, the, the pandemic's over. Just like that. <laughs> it, it, it is not, Matthew. <laughs> It feels that way, doesn't it? Doesn't it feel like people are treating it that way? Uh, yeah, it does. You know, I'm still being cautious, uh, as is Sandra. You know, we wear our masks at stores, and you, I went to the liquor store last week, and it had a sign that said, uh, mask required only if you're not vaccinated, and, you know, the employees weren't. It actually took me a minute to realize that the person behind the counter didn't have a mask on. But, uh, yeah, you know... Uh, it's it's tricky because it does seem like people are just diving right back in to regular life and and that makes me nervous but you know I also see that the the numbers show that it's all working the way it's supposed to so you know um I'm I'm certainly a little more encouraged about my own activities we've started seeing friends who we know are vaccinated and and we're we're actually going up to my parents uh this coming weekend we haven't been to their house since October. My dad hasn't seen the boys in a long time. So yeah, you know, I think we are, we're getting back to normal in a way that's comfortable for us. And I'm just, I'm hoping that even, <laughs> you know, people who aren't as cautious, I'm hoping that they are being safer than maybe their Instagram feeds are suggesting they are. I don't know. It's so, it's just, it, you know, it's like this weird psychological whiplash Yeah. to like have been so kind of paralyzed and, you know, kind of hobbled by the anxiety of what could happen outside your house. And then, you know, people are just fucking having cookouts. <laughs> and <laughs> I, I think that's the thing really is that idea that we need to be, kind to each other because we don't know what each other's experiences were for the past year and it's weird to me that someone would just immediately jump to like well screw you everything's safe everything points is safe without taking in the psychological element of the whole thing um and how it was unnerving and and some people were fine <laughs> and it, it you know nothing changed for them and other people there was drastic change and and loss and and so um i don't think it's something that we should take for granted but you know people will but there's only so much we could do I yeah guess. well you know i can't um i can't put too much faith in 
my neighbors in like the large capital N collective sense to, you know, rea- react with, you know, measured response and empathy. They, that proved not to be the case when people were, you know, when we were having several 9-11s a week. So uh, <laughs> um, I'm laughing because I'm nervous and, and scared of everybody. But, you know, it's just, yeah, I think that's it. You know, if I'm going to keep my mask on for a couple more months going to stores, as long as I don't catch flack for it, fine. I'm trying not to jump to conclusions and judge. I'm going to give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, there are telltale signs if someone has a QAnon tattoo on their forehead or something, I will assume the worst of them. But anyway, here we are. Going back to our first episode of the year that we were still very much like, oh, we're like, we thought this would be over within like a month. And now here we are. It's January and things are worse than ever. And we had other things to deal with in January that were frightening. Um, And now we're like, Uh, halfway through the year and it's still strange but you know i'm hopeful i see that across the board that people are 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 hopeful and the warm weather even though we've gone from like nice balmy 70 degrees (laughs) to now we're 90 degree weather we're already in the thick of things which kind of sucks i hate the summer but we figure because every year we do a bit of a recap at the end of the year uh, talking about some of our favorite things that we've experienced throughout the year, but also some things that we caught up on that we didn't get to talk about on the show. But we figured we're always cramming in so much stuff that we might as well do, um, you know, a halfway point episode uh, where we're talking about a lot of the stuff we've um, pop culture that we've um, consumed through the past six months, both old and new. Yeah, yeah. We figured a mid-year check-in's a little easier than trying to do a bit of an info dump the last week of December. You know, to your point, uh, you know, you were saying off mic, last year we sort of rushed through uh, certain categories just because we were running out of time. So, you know, this way we can kind of give a little bit of breathing room to more stuff over two episodes. Yeah, because this is fun. I like, um, I look forward to hearing about things from you and, and, and hopefully discovering new things and, and, and also sharing it with our listeners because uh, it's always fun to talk about things that maybe um, we don't always get to talk about on the show. Yeah, exactly. So do you want to dive in? Yeah, let's do it. Um, so at the end of our 2020 episode, we we really uh, crammed in some, some conversations about comics and books and whatnot. So I know that you're reading a bunch of stuff for the podcast. We talked about Usagi Ujimbo. Um, it's a, a favorite of ours. If you didn't get to listen to the episode, you know, go check it out. It's a great comic. Um, but we're also reading Hellboy uh, in anticipation for an episode on Hellboy. Uh, so I know you were reading Concrete. Yeah. So are, did you finish Concrete? Um, and why don't you talk about that for a second? Are there any other comics that, that you've uh, read in the past uh, six months? Uh, yeah, so I have not uh, gone back to Concrete yet. I read the first volume, and I picked up volumes two and three somewhat recently. And I've just been saving it just because it's it's a really weird comic. For anyone not familiar, it is about this guy who is he's a speechwriter for a, a politician who uh, bizarre circumstances involving aliens is sort of transmuted into this giant stone body that gives him 
not quite superpowers, but you know, he is this indestructible rock man who kind of becomes like a, a celebrity. It's, it's not a superhero book and it's much more about sort of like in a weird way, celebrity culture and, and, uh, and just an excuse to kind of go on these odd, almost philosophical little adventures. Like, um, you know, they're trying to, they, they figure a way to like keep this, you know, massive stone golem person buoyant. And he's like, Oh, well I'm going to swim across the Atlantic ocean because I can, and it all goes wrong, but like it goes on these weird little diversions. He, uh, he kind of gets conscripted into like entertaining a kid's birthday party in, in one issue and really doesn't want to be there and, you know, does things like put the mom's car up on the roof because now he can. And it's a, uh, it's really, it's a very strange, heady, like stonery kind of thing. But yeah, it's, and I recognize that it's really like a mood thing too. Like I really enjoyed it when I read that first volume and I haven't quite been like looking for that type of reading uh, in the time since, but I've got them here uh, for when I'm ready for that. And I did go back and read one of the uh, Usagi collections from the Fantagraphics era, which was cool because it has a um, a whole story arc about Gen, the um, the rhinoceros bounty fr- bounty hunter and. Uh, uh, on again, off again, best friend of Usagi Yojimbo, which was really cool. Yeah, I read a, a Usagi story as well from the early goings of this series, which introduced Jen. So, or again, um, so yeah, uh, love Usagi stuff. Is that it for comics or? Uh, well, Hellboy, but you know, I don't want to get too much into that. I do have the graphic novelization of Slaughterhouse Five that you got me for my birthday, which is on the stack. Um, I've just had some other stuff up first, but I'm excited to get into that. So speaking of that comic, um, which I do recommend, um, the Slaughterhouse Five, the illustrator, his name is uh, Albert Montes. Um, He's a Spanish comic book illustrator and writer. Um, I loved his artwork in the Slaughterhouse Five adaptation so much. So I sought out some of his other work and he has this series that's still going called Universe. And it's like a collection of loosely connected short stories, science fiction with all sorts of elements of um, time travel and space and, and um, aliens and um, artificial intelligence. Uh, it's, it's pretty fantastic. Uh, I love his artwork so much. It's hard to describe. It is, I don't want to say it's simple. Like he, his characters kind of have like dots for eyes. It's just his style. Um, but I love his layouts uh, and his use of color. He does everything in both the Slaughterhouse-Five and this universe comic. Uh, I'll have to let you borrow it. I think you'll really, really dig it. Cool. It's just that cool, slightly strange sci-fi worlds, big heady concepts and stuff like that. Um, it's it's really good. Um, I also read this series called Day Tripper. Um, by Fabian Moon and uh, Gabriel Ba. They're both, um, they're Brazilian comic book artists and they are brothers. I think they've done some stuff for Vertigo, which is part of DC Comics. But Day Tripper is essentially about this guy, um, this writer named uh, Brass. And he 
this isn't a spoiler, but uh, there are 10 issues, and at the end of issue, every issue, he dies. That's like the foundation of the book. So it's not really a spoiler, but it's interesting because after he dies after the first issue, the second issue has continuity from the first issue as if he didn't die. And that's how the Cole series kind of runs. And it's really about this lovely little story about death and acceptance and relationships and, um, and uh, you know, not to sound trivial, but the importance of, of the small moments in life and what whatnot. Um, it's really beautiful. Um, it's, it's got like a, like a watercolor kind of quality to the coloring, uh, really expressive, uh, line work, great, um, inking. You can see kind of the brushstrokes and inking and stuff like that. So that's day tripper. Um, and it's just self-contained and it's, it's over with. Um, but it's good. It's from 2011. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I know we've both been reading a lot of books, so so tell me what um, what has excited you this year, other than stuff we've we've covered on the show. Uh, well, just to sort of tie off a loose end, uh, I did start the year by finishing the Broken Earth trilogy. We covered the fifth season last fall. Um, so I read the Stone Sky in January, and yeah, it's really cool. And they just announced that um, N.K. Jemisin signed a big. Uh, adaptation deal she's going to be adapting the books herself which is super cool but yeah i mean man the the third book really goes places um you know gets into the origins of the stone eaters and you know how the uh oh gosh i can't remember what the name of the you know the the event the the catastrophe that caused the fifth the the you know the last fifth season yeah it's it's really big weird stuff and it was a uh, it was a lot of fun so if if uh you do have some interest in revisiting that world i recommend it did you read any of the other ones or i know you read the hundred thousand kingdoms yeah i that's another uh trilogy or that's the start of a trilogy um by nk jemison um i read that and i've kind of like planned to spread that out for the whole year mm-hmm. um and I, I plan on getting to the other ones. I think I got that trilogy really, I got it cheap. <laughs> so uh, now that I have all three of those, I figured I'd, I'd finish those first. Um, that book was pretty good. The reason I'm continuing is because I know I liked fifth season quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I'm hopeful that this series connects more. It's similar in a lot of ways. Uh, this This person who's kind of new to a world and and they're you know there are varying f- factions of people in power that are trying to manipulate her and she's trying to learn her place and all of it and and then uncovers things that are even bigger than her about these gods that have been around forever so there's it's it's an interesting premise uh it took me a while to really connect to it but even more so than the, the fifth season um but i, I do want to finish it because of um i like i said i like the fifth season so uh, and then once I finish those two, I'll, I'll get on to the next ones. I, I, as long as I finish before the the, the adaptations, yeah. uh, the, the movie versions or whatever come out. <laughs> Speaking of adaptations, uh, I also read Killers of the Flower Moon by David Gran because uh, Scorsese is adapting that for uh, Apple TV Plus, uh, which they just, I think they started filming like a month ago. Yeah, yep, yep. That, I didn't know that was for Apple TV Plus. Mm-hmm. Man, I'm I'm so excited for all these 
streaming services to just give him a a fuck ton of money to do whatever yeah. he wants. Like the Irishman was like what a hundred million, and you know because they're chasing that Oscar, that's what they want, really. Right. You know. Yeah, um, it's fine with me as long as he gets to do whatever. Sure, and this is uh, I mean, this is this is great stuff. I mean, there's a lot in this story that's you know in his wheelhouse. Um, so it's based on a true story. The short version is that the um, uh, the Osage Indians, when they were relocated to uh, a reservation in Oklahoma, they had, you know, part of the, the trade-off was that they would retain any mineral rights. And it turned out that this reservation was just uh, loaded with oil. So in the 20s, this was the richest per capita community in the country. Um, and then, you know, there's this rash of uh, killings and disappearances and it turns out that there are, you know, wealthy whites who are associated with the community that are sort of conspiring to uh, consolidate all of the mineral holdings. It's really fascinating. I mean, it's it's you know, it, it plays almost like uh, the book reads like a like a hard boiled detective story set against like a they will be blood kind of backdrop. Um, mm-hmm. You know, just really kind of a fucked up peek into um, a, a lot of these Indians were not, and I'm, I'm, I'm misremembering if it was across the board or just the women, but like they were, they were deemed not capable of managing their own finances. So they had these white like handlers who they're like, who, who would manage their immense oil fortunes. So that was part, you know, that's part of it. Like, you know, people, you know, white people marrying, into these families to sort of, you know, kind of get a foot in the door so that, Oh, if something, if something mysterious and bad happens, you know, they'll, they'll inherit some, some cash. It's really, uh, insidious. And, you know, I'm really looking, you know, look, <laughs> I was going to say it's really insidious and I'm really looking forward to the movie, but that sounds really callous. <laughs> um, it's a fascinating <laughs> story and, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm excited and I'm excited to see how, how it, plays out on the big screen the other two that i'm going to mention i have been reading a lot so i'll keep it short uh i read uh all right all right all right the oral history of days and confused by melissa mares mares um which is super fun um i did not expect my favorite voice in the book to be ben affleck but i think from considering he played like the only unlikable character in the movie to you know, by the end of the nineties, he was, you know, one of the biggest stars in the planet. And then his transition into a producer and director, like he had such a wide breadth of insight, like now looking back and he he could, he could speak to it as, you know, a young aspiring actor who was, you know, trying to make a name for himself to, Oh, you know, I put my director hat on or my producer hat on, um, yeah, it's insane that they just let all those horny teenage kids run around, uh, you know, with, with Jason Lee getting permission to be Marissa Rabisi's legal guardian, buying us all booze and stuff. Um, it's really like, yeah, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty, it's pretty fascinating. I mean, Days and Confused is a favorite of mine. Um, are there any sort of juicy gossipy type stories from the book or mostly tame? Um, no, I mean the you know no one really holds back about um, 
Mila Jovovich and I can't remember the actor's name, but the he the, the actor who played uh, Pickford, who was her boyfriend in the movie, and neither of them either were available or wanted to participate. So they're not their voices aren't present, but um, she was kind of off in her own. They, they both kind of like got off and they fell madly in love. And his management was really like aggressively like saying things like this is the next Brando and like letting it get, you know, that clearly got to his head. And, you know, it reads as such a collaborative sort of thing where, you know, at the end of the day, Linklater is like, you know, if what's on the page doesn't make it as long as like, what you make the character is what's important. And he would often like improv himself out of scenes. Like, Oh, I think me and my girlfriend be over here, like picking flowers and, and singing. And he's like, yeah, it's cool. But like, can you do it here with the rest of the people? And they're like, no, we'd be doing our own thing. And he's like, yeah, all right. Weird. Yeah. It's really weird. weird. No one had any, um, nice things to say really about their experience with either of them. And then of course, McConaughey kind of took off and, kind of they rewrote that role to fill the gap that the Pickford character was supposed to be in. He was supposed to be the one driving them off to into the sunset for Aerosmith tickets at the end, but I'll have to read it. Yeah. It's a lot Uh, of fun. On on a side note, I've been, I got all of the resident evil movies, super cheap on Blu-ray. And as I've been cooking dinner, I've been watching them and listening to the commentary tracks and and um, yeah, you, you can laugh. It's fine. I, I accept it. Um, and and the first one um, has uh, Mila is actually on it, and she emphatically, emphatically says her name is Mila Jovovich. I didn't know that. It's something I just learned. So oh, but she comes across like so well in it. She's just so charming and really funny. So it's interesting. I mean, she was so young for Days and Confused. Yeah, and I think. I think that had a lot to do with it. And I think maybe, you know, just that sort of symbiotic dependent relationship that the two of them sort of formed very quickly and passionately, like, but, uh, yeah, I mean, she was sort of poised to be a rising star. I guess there's that scene in the movie where she's super stoned and like sings a song about aliens and, and no one knew that that was an actual song she wrote for the album she was in the process of recording. Um, awesome. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, it was, it was fun. It was, it was, um, it's cool. It dives a lot into sort of like the Austin scene and talks a lot about slacker in particular. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. and you know, it just, yeah, some interesting perspective into, you know, the peek behind the curtain, even, even at like the idea of, you know, people in Austin who were a part of that and being like, yeah, you know, it was kind of our thing, not just Rick's thing. And, you know, I think he, he's, he doesn't shy away in the book from being like, yeah, it's cool that they felt they were part of something, but like, no, I was the one. And like, he kind of, kind of sticks to his guns and there are other voices to say otherwise. So it's not as, um, you know, it's not just one of those puffy books that kind of blows smoke up your ass. It really, it doesn't shy away from, you know, maybe the less squeaky clean, uh, nostalgic, which makes sense because I mean, he's still like, is can't believe he made a movie that people think was such a nostalgia piece. Cause his whole thing was like, no, the seventies sucked. And that's what yeah. the movie I wanted to make. Yeah. Yeah. And so you had one more book you said, Oh yeah. Um, I just read, uh, the three body problem by, 
uh, Liu Tsushin, um, which is really, you know, you mentioned earlier some big, big concept sci-fi. This is, um, you know, like classic, big interstellar hard sci-fi ideas. Um, it bounces between the sort of contemporary movement towards, uh, some sort of first contact and uh, connections back to the communist revolution and scientific attempts to make first contact with life on another planet. Um, it was, you know, like really like interesting stuff. Like hard sci-fi. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so, you know, interesting concepts like the idea that China's thinking, Oh, well the U S is you know putting a satellite out into the universe with a a message and the soviets are going to do it and you know maybe it's not a great idea if if those are the only two voices so we should also throw our hat in and then there's a there's a whole element about this essentially like a a massive multiplayer rpg about the um the rise and fall of civilizations and it kind of mirrors earth and like this sort of race to figure out why these civilizations keep crumbling. And it's all sort of, it's almost like a reverse matrix where the matrix is supposed to keep people dumb and uh, placated to not know the reality of the world they're being born into. This is sort of like a, like a test for people to be like, Oh, okay. You can go on to the next level. So you get to learn that aliens are real. Um, but uh, yeah, it's really cool. There's uh, there's two more books in the series, and I believe Netflix is adapting it. Uh, and, and the we've talked about this before, but the the movie The Wandering Earth, which was a big hit in China that Netflix brought over to the states last year, um, the author wrote the short story that that was based on as well. So I haven't gotten to that yet, but I, I do plan to check it out. That sounds that sounds pretty cool. Do you think I would like it, or you think it's too? Um, too jargony as we've, we've kind of come to realize that I'm not always crazy about that stuff. Well, it's not like, you know, it's not like jargony. I mean, it is uh, the jargon Jargon as in like technology, like sci-fi kind of, uh, well, I mean the, the jargony concepts are like math, like real complicated math and like, fuck that shit. (laughs) Well, I mean, there are parts where I'm like. I'm I'm reading it, but I'm I know that, like I just need to understand why this scientist is mm-hmm. invested so much in this thing to like to keep up with the plot. I'm not gonna the, like the the title comes from this uh, you know the, the the physics of like three orbiting bodies and like the predictability and so yeah and like it gets into stuff like the the limits of understanding of of physical science and sort of what's beyond that is there anything beyond that so it does um it couches all that nerd jargony math stuff with a lot of philosophy too which i think you'd like and then the you know the 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 certainly the more human side of things is really compelling so Hmm. cool is uh is that it for books for you that's it so, I, you know, I've talked to you about this book off mic. I may have even mentioned it. I may have quoted from it. I don't remember. The um, Bible. The Bible. That's right. 
I really wanted to relate to Job because I, uh, well, I do relate to Job um, because my life is falling apart. Because you're a magician? Um, wrong, Job. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> um, but I wanted, uh, I read this book. Um, it's a biography of Ishiro Honda. It's called Ishiro Honda, A Life in Film from Godzilla to Kurosawa. Um, it is written by Steve Rifle and Ed, I'm going to butcher this and I'm really sorry. I apologize. God, this, G O D Z I S Z E W S K I. So I, I apologize. I, I don't know how to say that. Um, but you know, as biographies go, I'm not going to make any great claims to, to, uh, the quality of its prose. I mean, it's, it's well written. Um, but I really took to this because as I've talked about, um, ad nauseum, uh, on, on the podcast that I've, I've been obsessed with Godzilla. So I really wanted to learn more about, uh, one of his creators and Ishiro Honda is the director of the original Godzilla movie. And, um, he co-wrote, um, the screenplay. Um, but I really kind of fell in love with him in general because, you know, we've been hearing so many stories about, um, writers and directors and creators that are, turn out to be awful people. And it's really, a it's a bummer to, to find out that someone whose work you've enjoyed, um, is, is a piece of shit. But, Everything I got from this book was that he was um, not only a, um, a, a professional uh, and worked well with everyone on set, but he was also a humanist and, and, and a lovely person to be around. And um, But what's great about the book is that you also get a brief history of Japan through it because... Um, you know, he fought in World War II, and even before that, he was, I think he was drafted like three times, um, and he's sort of a company man, uh, so he he was away at war a lot, and that's maybe the biggest difference between him and his best friend, who is Akira Kurosawa, who's probably the most famous Japanese director of all time, uh, but they came up together, learned how to direct together, uh, and were best friends, but Kurosawa had some kind of pull with his father and was able to get out of the draft, uh, but not so for Honda, uh, and so I think that informs a lot of his storytelling and the way he treats people, because he did see um, the aftermath. Well, he, he was a POW. Uh, he experienced war firsthand and he did see the aftermath of, uh, Hiroshima. So uh, a lot of his work is, um, about how our governments fail us and how military oftentimes are exacerbate the problem and how our faith in science and knowledge can really help us um, but can also <laughs> cause the problem in the in the first place, as we know. Like Godzilla himself is 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 a is a allegory for nuclear um, the nuclear bomb uh, that went off uh, in Hiroshima. Um, and a lot of his sci-fi movies um, are infused with that and have this real humanist quality to him. And and there's a lot of hope in these movies about monsters and and guys in rubber costumes and in lots of miniature sets. Um, 
And in addition to getting like a brief history of Japan and what was happening, um, you get a bit of post-war Japan uh, and also a bit of the film industry at the time. And you learn about how even their most biggest budget film was minuscule in, in comparison to what was happening over in our country. And it gives you a bit of perspective on the Godzilla movies in general. Um, but I just really found him charming. And, and later in his life, he worked on the last few Kurosawa movies with Kurosawa. He was his uh, first assistant director. Uh, and, you know, Kurosawa was known for blowing up and storming off set and, and uh, Honda would sort of ease tensions and and get everyone back together um and i don't know i just i i really fell for the guy and i loved reading about him uh and and i and i did a deep dive on a lot of his uh non-godzilla movies and stuff like that so it was it was a great a great read um this other book i want to recommend uh it's called the lady from the black lagoon Hollywood Monsters and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick. It's by Mallory O'Meara. And she's a movie producer on her own. She does um, uh, independent horror films, usually low budget stuff. Um, But what the book is about is, um, like the title says, um, Millicent Patrick. And she was the artist that designed the creature from the Black Lagoon, one of the most famous universal monsters ever, right? Um, but unfortunately, uh, at the time, you know, if you if you watch old movies, oftentimes like the department head was the one that was represented in the credits, and there's many people that worked underneath them. Uh, but uh, um, but you know, when you watch the credits, they're brief, and and you only really get uh, a few of the higher ups. So there's a guy named Bud Westmore who is they he took all the credit for it. Um, so the book is great because it's sort of a mystery in the sense that the author Mallory O'Meara talks about the importance of Millicent Patrick to her, uh, about this woman who created this monster and how much that influenced her and how oftentimes, um, women were relegated to, 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 to the dustbins of history when it came to a lot of early Hollywood. She's Millicent Patrick was also one of the first, uh, animators for Disney. She has a crazy life. Um, she worked for Disney. She was an animator on Fantasia. Um, she designed monsters. Uh, but then once she was getting some notoriety for that, um, her boss, Bud Westmore, kind of put the kibosh on that and she got fired. Um, but she was um, defined by being an artist and, and, and creating these fantastical things but she was very elegant herself and uh, but there's a lot about her that is a mystery because it's just lost to time um so the movie the book again plays like a mystery uh it's really interesting uh and it's sort of like a counter narrative for like hey like we need more representation in hollywood to prevent um these kind of things from happening and giving people like millicent the credit that she she deserves um, it was a fun read, especially if you're a big fan of monster movies and in um, Universal monster movies in general. Yeah, I did a I did a monster a Universal monster movie kick a few years ago, and I I didn't do, maybe that one wasn't available because I don't know what not available like maybe uh, it wasn't streaming because like Frankenstein and and Bride of Frankenstein and Dracula and the Mummy I knocked all those out and I I still have never seen the creature from the Black Lagoon. It's good. Uh, 
the creature is just so cool and there are some sequences that look so great still to this day especially with the black and white i think that was like one of the last uh, universal monster movies because uh, it's 1954, I believe. Uh, let me. I'm gonna try. And Dracula is what, like 32, yeah. 34? Yeah, it came out in 1954. It's the last, at least, new creature, the last new monster um, from that era. Uh, so yeah, it's great. Uh, it's it's totally worth watching, and the book is is a lot of fun. Um, it's it, it's strange because like there's there's only so much we could know about her uh, because again she it wasn't documented so uh it's sort of like wrestling this legacy from the mystery of of her life yeah her dad her dad helped design um oh what's his name the guy from mank not mank he's famous the guy that um Citizen Kane is supposedly based off. Oh, um, uh, Hearst. Yes. Um, so he had like a big mansion in a house and Millicent Patrick's father does help design it. And so she lived on that property. It's this big, massive property in LA. Um, and so she lived there. So she had the craziest life. It's not just that she designed the creature from the black lagoon. She just has like this really fascinating story she did so much and um lived a interesting and full life that sounds great yeah it's worth reading it's cool um and i also read um i'll finish off with a uh, true believer the rise and fall of stan lee oh cool um, by by abraham reisman um and uh it's really sad <laughs> uh you know I've talked about Stanley on the podcast in the past. Uh, we talked about the controversy around Stan um, on our Fantastic Four episode. Um, so I'm probably going to come down on the side of the favor of Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko. Uh, but the book does paint a pretty vivid picture of Stan taking credit for things that he shouldn't have taken credit for. But beyond that, like it seems like he was sort of manipulated a lot when he uh, got older and his last few years seemed pretty, pretty miserable. Um, yeah. It's really, it's a tragic end. Uh, he seemed to hate being a part of the Marvel movies and his cameos and his, once his wife died, his daughter um, really t- tried to, take advantage of him and in, in his money mm-hmm. um so that part of it's sad and no one deserves that um uh, he was part of some businesses some shady business stuff in the 90s uh in the early 2000s that uh, that um the author of the book you can't be 100 percent sure that stan was in on the take you know he claims he wasn't and he didn't know what was going on behind his back but there was a lot of shady dealings mm-hmm. Uh, and using his name in order to to manipulate people and make money. Um, so it's a fascinating read. If you're interested in the history of Marvel Comics, it kind of gives a brief uh, overview of that through the lens of Stan in general. Um, I also read, I, I forgot, I read this great uh, gra- uh, graphic novel about Jack Kirby, um, which uh, I, I absolutely loved. Yeah, it's called um, Jack Kirby, The Epic Life of the King of Comics, and it's by uh, Tom Scaloli, um, who is a big Kirby fan himself. 
Um, so it's the stylistically, you know, it's not super Kirby. I mean, you can only imitate Kirby so much cause he's just such a singular, uh, creator. Uh, but it charted his whole life and it was great to read that, uh, in, in tandem with, um, the Stanley biography. I think the thing with both guys is that they're, they're both known for, for hyperbole and for having shitty memories and for mythologizing themselves. So I don't know if we'll ever know the definitive truth, but I do think that there is enough evidence to point to the fact that the artist probably had a, a bit more um, to do with the actual stories than Stan did. Sure. So Yeah. Yeah, that one's definitely on the list. Um, he is such a fascinating character, and whether or not he is singularly responsible, like we've sort of been led to believe um you know he does have a, an important role in sort of defining the oh, the look sure. of culture <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah for sure yeah and and you know if anything stan was the guy that that really created the idea of the marvel fan base you know like hey mighty marvel fans you know that whole stan's bullpen thing and like you're a marvel make mine the marvel way that was all stan and kind of creating this culture that we have now maybe inadvertently but he was at the forefront of that and kind of pushing this sort of the way we talk about comic books and and superheroes and whatnot i think for me ultimately uh no matter what you believe what i am hopeful for is that you know, if you meet a common person, like those, the Marvel movies are so huge. Uh, and if you ask your average Marvel Cinematic Universe fan who created these characters, they're going to say Stan. And I think if we can change that to at least say Stan and Jack and and Steve uh, Ditko, um, then that would probably be good. It was, I mean, like they had to fight to get Jack's name on those movies um, after he died. His family had to fight for it. And that's just preposterous. Yeah. It, it really is. He did create Captain America. Stan had nothing to do with Captain America. Uh, Stan wasn't even part of Marvel at the time. And I, I think that's the one thing from both the Stanley book and the Jack Kirby comic is is how often these companies mistreat their creators and how much yeah. they're manipulated them and, and took advantage of them. Like Kirby was an artist and kept going back and forth between these companies because that's his passion. He loved it so much and he was taken advantage of both from Marvel and from DC. So, yeah. So on that happy note, <laughs> let's move on. So, um, so I know at the end of last episode, you talked about you've, you've been watching a lot of movies for uh-huh. you and, and you're super excited about that. And there's a lot of, um, movies that you've caught up on this year and so so what are you excited about what have you caught up on um that uh, has really excited you uh yeah i've got i've got a few here i don't want to spend too much time on on any of them but um you know after hours was a scorsese blind spot that i finally took care of oh that was your first your first viewing oh wow yeah Yeah, it's so so good so great yeah it's a lot of fun um (laughs) <laughs> uh, I had never seen Speed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, which was, again, just, uh, I mean, a very different it's kind great. of movie. But uh, yeah, it's so fun. It's funny. Like 10 minutes before this part where like 
they get the bus to the airport so they can just keep driving around. Sandra's like, man, they just need a really big cul-de-sac. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. Uh, it's it's funny you mentioned speed because I was actually, before we, re- we, we started recording, I was making dinner and I've been watching speed with the commentary track by... Uh, by the director Jan DeBont um, and uh, it's great because he talks about like he's like oh we had 15 buses total each one with different setups um, and uh, you know different camera kind of setups and rigs and all that not and sections for where they can be um, uh, in order to to do it quickly because he said like you know we had a decent budget but it's not considered like a super high budget uh, but it's just fascinating to hear like all these little tidbits about how they did everything because everything is practical there's no computers to do anything in that movie. It's all actual buses driving blowing into up. things and yeah, blowing up. Yeah. Yeah. It's so great. I, I, I just love the construction of that movie so much. And when I was a kid and it came out, I was like, this is dumb. And I, you know, when you get older, you just realize that that's not the point. And really like how that, how it builds these elaborate, um set pieces are it's just so impressive to me um and it's like almost like a lost art at this point you know oh yeah yeah it's just a, it's like a fun like it's it's candy it's a roller coaster and that like you know there's something to be said for that being done well you know i don't know that we need 12 new roller coasters a year it, you know i think that's being that's that's lowballing it at this point but you know what i mean <laughs> sure. uh, anyway mm-hmm. um more contemporary i finally got around to tenet yeah which i i dug it it's like yeah me too it's i mean it looked really cool and i think it does you know i I think maybe it's sort of the the least i think of all of nolan's movies this one probably uh holds up the least to really close examination but i think at the same time it's also like oh i've got this really cool gimmick let's how do we build a movie around it and, like, I don't care that, like, you know, it was maybe uh, overly confusing or, like, some stuff, like, didn't seem, like, it was just, like, you know, like, a kind of, like, a mystery box kind of thing. But uh, it looked fucking cool, man. It looked really sharp. And, um, man, and Washington is so good. Like, I, wanted, I, want, I want that dude in more big movies like this. I I mean uh, Patterson to me was stole the show. He's just like oozes charm. Like that role, that role in general on paper uh, is just is probably nothing, and he just gives it so much specificity with how um, almost laissez faire he is with the whole thing. Once I knew exact because I didn't know to like I didn't read anything about the movie before watching it. I wanted to go in as cold as possible. Once the gimmick or the conceit of the movie kind of presents itself and things really kick in. I was just so giddy because I love that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Like absolutely love it. And I do think that, you know, in a rewatch, it could s- jump up for me. Um, did, now, did you watch it with subtitles? No. Yeah. See, I've heard everyone say, watch it with subtitles. Um, uh, I, I do think there was some stuff that I was just like, I'm not entirely sure what they're saying. And I know it's partly by design. Like he just likes to do these, his mixes are, can be muddy and that's almost intentional. It almost seems like people are just like, oh, you explain your movies. Like the big, one of the big criticisms with him 
is like, oh, you you over explain everything, you know, it's too much exposition. And he almost like, oh, yeah, well, fuck you. It's all it's just just exposition. Um, and the the main character's name is the protagonist. And it's just kind of like it's ballsy and how like dumb it is in mm-hmm. some ways. And and yet it, it worked for me. And 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 like that score, man, like, oh, it's so, so good. It's it's just kind of experimental and noisy and weird and but still has that big kind of hooks and riffs that a lot of Nolan movies have uh, by Ludwig Gorenson who does um who works with uh, Ryan Coogler did Back Panther but also most recently did the music for um The Mandalorian which is probably the best part of The Mandalorian in my opinion I, I think the music is is great um and so he I'm glad that he's working with Nolan now yeah I'm gonna have to give it a rewatch maybe uh, if there's a world where I've maybe got the house to myself at night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Crank gonna, it, right? you know, I can't, I can't really, I can't just let her rip, unfortunately. Uh, and I, you know, and I have been, you know, I guess shifting gears a little bit. I have been, I'm like, Oh, well, because I can't listen to stuff too loud. Um, this is a great opportunity to catch up on some foreign movies. Cause I have to watch with subtitles. So, um, I think, uh, my favorite first watch of the year has probably been uh, Tampopo, which is mm-hmm. um, it's just this really sweet love letter to food. It's a Japanese film from the 80s. Um, a very young Ken Watanabe is in it. Um, the director describes it as a ramen Western. Uh, and it's got these <laughs> kind of like, you know, uh, Western flourishes. I mean, the one of the main characters has a cowboy hat. Um he and Ken Watanabe are truckers, um, which is kind of like a, a modern equivalent of a cowboy, I guess. Uh, but, but the movie revolves around them trying to help this, uh, widow who has inherited her husband's, uh, ramen shop to perfect the art of the, uh, of a great bowl of noodles. And, but it just like, it, it will spin off into these little vignettes about different people's relationships to food. Like, uh, there's one scene where a woman is trying to teach a bunch of Japanese women um, sort of how to like uh, properly uh, eat a fancy meal in like the Western sense or like really trying to get them to not slurp their noodles. And it's just like it's just a cacophony of slurping or like there's a a couple who just like get off on kinky food stuff. And, and there's a scene where like they crack an egg into each other's mouth and they just keep like passing the yolk back and forth and like trying not to break it or like putting like a live octopus under a bowl on her belly and she just starts writhing and yeah it just in addition to like the main story which is very adorable and uh sweet and funny and and thoughtful it just has these weird it's not afraid to sort of branch off into these other (laughs) these other ways that people enjoy food um which as someone with with dietary restrictions uh is both uh, exciting to watch and also kind of disappointing, uh, knowing that I will never be able to taste a bowl of noodles <laughs> as good as, as this woman's aspiring to make. Um, uh, yeah, I've been talking a lot. What are, what are some that you've been watching? Yeah. You know, this is a massive blind spot for me. A few years back, I watched the opening of this movie and absolutely fell in love with it and just got, like oh my god like this is the greatest thing ever and i've been influenced by the opening of this movie and for some reason i just never finished the movie i think i had fallen asleep in that that first watch 
uh, and had it on like Netflix disc. That's how that's how far back this goes. That's not entirely true because I still get Netflix disc. Uh, and, and I would put it on every once in a while and I'd always watch the opening and just be like amazed by the opening, but just never finishing. It is a three hour movie. Um, but finally I sat down and I watched Once Upon a Time in the West, which is by uh, Sergio Leone. Uh, it's from 1968 and it stars Henry Fonda and Charles Bronson and James Robard. Uh, and oh man, like I just love this type of patient, deliberate storytelling um, which takes everything into consideration in order to build tension from, you know, like like a sign that's kind of fallen askew and is just like banging up against the the wooden pole that it's hanging from and someone playing a harmonica and, and close-ups. Like, it's he's such a deliberate filmmaker. I love all of his movies. Um, this one may be my favorite now. Um, I just absolutely fell in love with it. Um, it's so good. Uh, have you watched, have you seen any Sergio Leone movies? Uh, yeah, I've seen the Man With No Name trilogy, and I think that might be it. And those are great. If you like those, yeah. there's no reason why you wouldn't like um, Once Upon a Time in the West. Um, it's a great sweaty movie, you know, like mm-hmm. everyone just looks grimy and gross. And um, Henry Fonda is a villain, and he's so good because he, he's really like nasty like that. Um, it's great to see him like that. And, and, and you know, this is one of our earlier Charles Bronson movies before he got kind of sucked into the whole death wish machine. Um, uh, and he's great. He's really, he's really charming. And, uh, the, there's a lot of great backstory in there. I'm sure you'd recognize a bunch of the music cues cause Tarantino has reused them. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, uh, man, I absolutely fell in love with it. Um, you know, I, I had mentioned Ichiro Honda, uh, and the book, uh, the biography I read of him, so I wanted to mention a couple of his movies. Um, one called Mantango, which is um, the U.S. title, is called Attack of the Mushroom People, uh, and um, which has got this, you know, that great '50s sci-fi uh, title. Um, and it's about these people that are on a boat um, and they crash on this island, and and you know they start getting infected and, and turning on each other. It's sort of like uh, an early version of like the thing, uh, except for they start turning into these mutated mushroomy type people. Um, it's really smart and clever uh, uh, and, and pretty dark. Uh, a lot of his movies, um, and he talked about in interviews like, oh, this is not totally true, but you can't help but read it. But at that time, post-World War II, Japan was occupied by America and a lot of the movies had to um, pass the American codes that they kind of put in front of them saying like, hey, you you can't say X, Y, and Z about America. You can't do this, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot of things had to be a little stealthy. Uh, and so in another one of his movies, which feels even more directly about uh, the U.S. occupation of Japan uh, post-World War II is called The Mysterians. Uh, it's got this great sort of 50s sci-fi like those really sleek corridors and like the spacesuits and stuff about this these aliens that come down to the planet and basically basically they're like hey we destroyed our planet we're here we're gonna take your women and we're gonna fuck them uh you know they don't say that this is the 50s um but that's the premise essentially we're gonna steal your women uh we need them to repopulate our species um because we destroyed our planet but a word of a warning for you 
you know, don't do what we did, but they they're nefari- have nefarious intentions. And so you can kind of read that U.S. occupation into the movies. Um, uh, unfortunately, I couldn't find a very good copy of it, so it didn't look super great, and it was dubbed, so I'm desperate to get, like, a, a nice... Um, uh, uh, pristine copy of uh, the Japanese version because I know a lot of times with the dub you kind of lose some of the subtext and and I know with a lot of the Godzilla movies um, the dubs were often made by U.S. producers and they would remove at least 10 minutes of footage and insert American actors and and uh, change a lot of the dialogue and stuff so you really lose a lot of stuff when you watch the um, American versions. Um, but yeah, those two are tons of tons of fun and, and great kind of sci-fi 50s stuff. I love that look, you know, like those spacesuits from uh, 1950s science fiction movies. That's just, I, I, you know, I love it. Before they had any concept of what it might take to survive yeah. in a vacuum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, so uh, I, I actually just watched another Ishiro Honda movie called um, Battle in Outer Space. Uh, and I'll be brief, but um, it's... Uh, it came out two years before the first man- manned space flight. And, and and in the biography, Honda talks a lot about how he loved science and he would they would always consult with scientists to try and get things right, but there was only so much stuff that they didn't know. But there's a scene where um, in all the different countries come together and we're like, there's aliens are going to attack us, so we got to team up and um, we got to go into outer space as a unit. Um, you know, the collective is better uh, for the whole planet. And so... These astronauts go in two spaceships and they go up into outer space. And at one point, this guy unbuckles and he floats up to the ceiling. And one of the other astronauts goes up to him. He pulls him down. He's like, you got to be careful that the gravity in here is, you know, there's no gravity in the spaceship. And he's like, oh, okay. And then they just all proceed to walk, walk away. It's so charming in its naivete that uh, you can't help but, but love it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's, that's funny. A couple others that I want to just rattle off real quick, and one I just want to speak a little bit about, but um, I finally got around to Attack the Block, which is just like, I mean, from the jump, that movie is just relentless and doesn't yeah. stop until it's over, and it's so fun. It's great. I, I, I couldn't, I was so, it, you know, we talk a lot about this and how there's no real reason to regret not getting to something sooner because we have it all at our fingertips. But like this was a fast favorite and I really kicked myself for not having seen it sooner. Didn't they just announce too that they're going to do a sequel? I think. Yeah. This yeah. Year. I think so. Yeah. That's exciting. Uh, same with assault on precinct 13, uh, which yeah. I had never seen before. And I think, you know, and I think I was talking to you after I'd watched it. I think, I think the only weak spot in that movie for me, I think, is the performances. I think there's nobody there to give like, you know, he doesn't he doesn't have a Kurt Russell yet or a Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, but like, you know, I think I texted you as soon as I started watching it. I'm like, is this John Carpenter's best score? And you said something like, it's... depends on the day. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I mean, yeah. the, I love that score. The score's yeah. good. Um, I mean, it's such a like, obviously like like a B exploitation movie, but he just like, he takes that so seriously and shoots it so well, um, elevates the whole thing. It was so much fun. And it's really smart about race too, for a movie of its time. Um, uh, it, it's, 
it's quick to not make the villains all African Americans or or of certain minorities and all that. And um, it's a very diverse um, movie um, of the type that you don't always see nowadays. Um, it's great. Uh, it's his second movie. Uh, if so, uh, you know, uh, we've talked about Carpenter on the podcast in the past, and he's he's one of my favorites. And I I do love that movie quite a bit. I'm so I was so excited when you you texted me about it. Yeah, uh, yeah. But he also like he worshipped uh, Howard Hawks, and that's his version of Rio Bravo, mm-hmm. um, which is a very different type of movie. Rio Bra- Bravo has a similar premise, but is more of like a hangout movie. Uh, which Hawks was sort of known for in his later days when he did uh, westerns and stuff. Um, so, uh, but Rio Bravo is awesome. I think you'd really like that too. I finally got in the mood for love under my belt. Loved it. It was just beautiful, lovely, sad. Um, yeah, I, I was so excited. I'm, and I'm excited to dive more into uh, his films, but I watched Pink Flamingos last night for the first time have you seen and you have not seen pink flamingos i haven't seen it no 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 i i I think i've only seen like some of the most random uh john waters movies not like the big ones like some some of the like later period ones like serial mom and one of the other ones in there but i haven't really seen any of the old ones you know i think especially especially when you're talking about something older that is notorious or infamous or like especially shocking Time kind of sands down the edges, you know, there are those trailblazing things that like do that take that step over the line first and then it's imitated and then norms change and then, uh, you know, certain things, certain amounts of violence or language or sex or, or just grossness kind of become not commonplace, but like you're, you know, once, once you've seen everything that comes after, it's hard to go back and see the source and, and be as impressed or shocked by it. Time has not sanded down the edges on this movie. It is, um, it is as disgusting as he <laughs> wanted it to be in the early seventies. And it's, it's so filthy and like, just so like gleefully absurd in how gross it is. Um, I mean, the premise is that divine the um yeah the, the the drag queen who who starred in a number of his movies is is sort of has this reputation of being the filthiest person alive and then there's this couple who are like fuck that we're the filthiest people alive and the movie becomes <laughs> just sort of like i mean i'm surprised there wasn't an actual pissing contest <laughs> given given everything else that they do but um yeah this competition of like really gross one-upsmanship describing it would be like the Stefan sketch from SNL or he'd say like this club has everything. And then just rattles off a bunch of heinous, disgusting things. Pink Flamingos has a lot. And I know as soon as I texted you, you said, Oh, have you gotten to this one part yet? Which is like the part everybody talks about that is at the very end, which is truly awful. But um, (laughs) there is, there is some stuff in, you know, throughout the movie that like is just so gross and I had so much fun with it. There was one thing where I I have never jumped off the couch so fast, but I remember that the <laughs> curtains were open and my next door neighbors have like really young kids. Um, and there and there is a like a contortionist just flexing his his prolapsed rectum open and closed. <laughs> and I, uh, it's really filthy. It's really fun and like uh, it's weird 
for it to not be nasty. Uh, even like the stuff that's real, like there's some really dark stuff and it's just so like, yeah, it's, 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 it's unreal. I'm excited to watch more of his movies because it's, 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 you know, it kind of scratches that same itch. Like where it's like jackass or I mean, any like really raunchy comedy, but like, man, this is just another level of filth and I'm, I'm very excited and, I have been told in no uncertain terms that I have to watch John Waters movies by myself and they will not be tolerated. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> um, so I had a couple more I wanted to mention. One um, uh, I wanted to mention because it's by a director that we've covered here on the podcast. Uh, it's called One False Move um, by Carl Franklin. He directed Devil in a Blue Dress, which we have covered um, a couple episodes back, um, which we both really, really enjoyed. And this movie had popped up on Criterion. And this came out before Devil in a Blue Dress. It stars Bill Paxton and Billy Bob Thornton and Cinda Williams. I think I like this a little bit better than Devil in a Blue Dress. That could possibly be because the movie version of Devil in a Blue Dress couldn't really live up to what the book was able to say and do. Um, and, and one false move stands on its own. It it was written by Billy Bob and I believe one other, one other person, but it's kind of like a noir, a Southern noir. Uh, and uh, Bill Paxton, uh, plays like the, the, the town sheriff. Billy Bob Thornton is a criminal and his girlfriend is played by uh, Cinda Williams. And, uh, they rob some people and, and, and murder some people are on the run. Uh, and these FBI agents come from out of town and Bill Paxson's kind of showing him around. But it's so smart about how these small towns have like this internalized power dynamics and the wounds of racism just embedded at the core of, of these these small communities and how you can't escape these things. And it's got one, one kind of shocking gut punch of an ending that... Could maybe, I, I think some people could maybe say it's too much, but I it really, really, it was effective for me. And this may be my favorite Bill Paxton performance. I, he's a terrific character actor, often kind of underrated, uh, even though he's popped up in a bunch of genre stuff, uh, uh, most notably um, Aliens. Uh, there's a turn uh, towards the back half of the movie where he has to sort of modulate his performance and it's just it's it really floored me um i think it's it's really worth seeking out um it's great in general but even for his performance alone it was just it was it was fantastic yeah well i think i feel like bill paxton always like i feel like his roles always exist in a pretty narrow spectrum but i think within that there are there are a couple of modes where he like he really like turns it on in a way that's, you know, like I think, I think there's like baseline Bill Paxson, but like when he stands out, it's really something. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, I watched another movie a couple of nights ago, uh, from 2020 that I wanted to mention primarily because I don't hear enough people talking about it. I think it was a smaller, uh, indie movie that kind of, you know, slipped by a lot of people. Uh, it's called the kid detective. This mm-hmm. is directed by Evan Morgan. I think this is his first movie, at least his first full length. Uh, stars Adam Brody, and he plays um, this guy who's in his thirties. 
And when he was a kid, he solved a few small mysteries in the town and became like this local celebrity uh, and started solving mysteries for everyone for a small fee. And, and um, until one of his friends, this young girl goes missing from that point forward, his life starts to kind of, his life starts to fall apart. Uh, now he's in his thirties and he's still trying to be a private detective and uh, someone comes to him with a case, but this is a real deal case uh, about their, this, this woman comes in Well, she's a young girl. She's in, still in high school and her boyfriend was murdered uh, and asks Adam, she asks Adam Brody to help her solve the murder. And it kind of, you know, one of those things where, as you know, with noirs, it's like pulling on the string uh, and uh, everything starts falling apart. I think the the thing with this movie is, you know, you hear the title and you probably think it's this cutesy indie movie or even like a Disney movie, The Kid Detective, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not that at all. It's kind of somewhere in between, you know, Brick, maybe not as, as dark as Brick, but it's doing similar things um, uh, and uh, has, has a very dry sense of humor a lot of the lines are just delivered so um nonchalantly and adam brody is fantastic uh and it's really funny and really clever and goes to some surprising places with some odd parallels to chinatown um i think you would really really like it and that's primarily why i'm I'm mentioning it to you i think you should seek it out um it's a lot of fun and i and, and and i don't think people are aware of it so i kind of wanted to um it really surprised me i I didn't expect anything from it and um it was it was really good nice yeah that sounds great it sounds a lot like um i think i talked about this before but i read a book a couple years ago called meddling kids which kind of like has sort of like a like what if the scooby gang all grew up to be complete fuck-ups because their last case as kids was actually supernatural and it kind of ruined their lives and then they sort of come back together to to solve it for real. Um, but yeah, that sounds that's this sounds so it's the kid detective and is that on Netflix currently? So no, uh it was it's on um uh it's on stars, I think. And the only reason I got stars is because um there was a bunch of movies from the John Singleton movies and I've been going through and watching John Singleton movies. And so I subscribed for a month to watch. It was cheaper to subscribe for a month to, for a month for seven bucks and watch John Singleton movies and try and watch a bunch of movies. Oh, yeah, on yeah. There that, totally. But if you've never subscribed to stars, you could get a week for free and watch the kid detective. So <sighs> if uh, I got to if that I think is stars the channel that Outlander's on. I don't maybe because uh, yeah, we may yeah, have used maybe. our freebie on that one. I'll have to I'll just have to. You could do the freebie on Hulu, though. <laughs> the, the, the subscription to stars on Hulu, right? Um, There's always a loophole. The movie does a great job, too, of showing how our perspectives from our youths are, 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 you know, oftentimes we look back fondly on things or think highly of ourselves, and that isn't entirely true. Um, and I think it does a really, it's really savvy about kind of dismantling his worldview. And it's, again, it's, it's really funny and really sly and subtle ways it's so dry the humor it's really great um yeah um so is that it for movies uh i think that's yeah i think so yeah okay so i had one before we move on um and finish up with tv shows i had one one question for you yeah i know you've been doing all these catch-ups right and you've watched a lot of great stuff 
mm-hmm. but is anything as good as the red shoes? Now, for our listeners, if you haven't listened to our episode, we, we did an episode on the Best Picture nominees from 1949, and in that, we talked about The Red Shoes by uh, Powell and Pressburger, um, and we both you know, loved that movie, and Tony was totally surprised and taken aback by how, how good he thought it was. Um, go listen to that episode. Um, but I, I, I know you were just so kind of bowled over by it, so I, and you're catching up on all these older great movies, so I was just curious, like, how does it stack up? Uh, I don't know if I've seen a better movie, but I've probably watched a few I've had more fun with. Okay, that's fair. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I don't know that I would call The Red Shoes a favorite. Sure. As, as much as I was floored by it or like, you know, if I, if I took the, you know, at the end of the year, if I've got my list of like my favorite movies that I watched for the first time, I don't know if that's going to be one. Depends on who I'm talking to if I'm going to recommend The Red Shoes over something else. I mean, but I, I could say the same for Pink Flamingos. I uh, <laughs> true, very, very, very true. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I um, and, and I've been. Oh man, I've been really like antsy to watch Black Narcissus, but uh, it's one of those things where uh, just because where we've really got the TV set up in the house, uh, it doesn't really quite get dark enough until like almost nine <laughs> at this point. So I might just sit on that till the fall or winter, so I can. Because at that point, it's just it's so late. And and um, not to spring this on you, but are there any rewatches that you had this year where you uh, maybe changed your mind that you could think of off the top of your head? Um, no, you know, I'm I'm kind of drawing a blank. I've actually been really proud of myself. I think, you know, if I'm going by Letterboxd, I've probably logged close to 60 movies this year. Um, and I don't think... Uh, I don't think I've even come close to double digits for rewatches. I've really been trying to like, if I'm going to watch a movie, like I want it to be something I haven't seen before. Cause it's, we're still in that place where, uh, you know, time, time to commit two to three hours of, you know, to, to get through something is still uh, a luxury with, you know, with the, the babies. So, um, you know, I think I'm going to prioritize stuff I haven't seen over, um, rewatches. Not to say that, you know, we haven't gone back to some favorites every once in a while, but um, yeah, not where I've been focusing my energies. Makes sense. Should we move on to TV? Sure. Yeah. So are are there any older shows that you've watched um, not for the podcast um, this year or things that you've caught up on? Uh, Yeah. Sandra and I are watching through New Girl. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Which I know. So she she's always been a big Zoe Deschanel fan. She was a big fan of she and him. And I know we've seen parts of it. There are certain episodes that have kind of felt very familiar and stuck out, but I, I don't think we've ever, I know it, if we did watch it at one point, we kind of dropped off and we never finished it. Uh, but I'm really enjoying it. I know, uh, especially when it was airing, I think it was very easy for like, it was very easy to be like dismissive and be like, Oh, it's just Zoe Deschanel being a, manic pixie dream girl again and the show certainly starts that way but i think by the second season it it's not so much that her quirkiness like goes away i think i think it becomes more of an ensemble and they're all pretty weird and and it's not just in that sort of like twee cutesy way um because that wouldn't you know that would get old pretty quick and i i think they recognize that like you know whatever 
you know, maybe that's not what's going to have legs and the dynamics and the relationships and, and just like the, let's spread the weird around. And sometimes, you know, it's a little too much, but uh, I'm really enjoying it. It's a really, it's, you know, it's a really fun uh, ensemble sitcom. And like I said, you know, I think going into it, I was expecting her to really be the centerpiece. And I don't know that uh, that's really the conceit. And, and they kind of move along, move on from that quickly. And, and really, uh, it's it's not so much her show as it is the 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 core roommates, um, but yeah, I'm liking it. That's really um, you know we were looking for a good easy <laughs> easy lift after um, Superstore and Shit's Creek. Besides that, I know you and I are both watching Mythic Quest, and and I feel guilty for how I feel about For All Mankind. So I might want to go back and start that one over because I know a lot of people really love it, and I think because I know it's Sandra's not interested. It's like I'll, I was watching it at like 10 o'clock and, and kind of like half in half out already starting to fall asleep half in half out. So I was like, Oh cool. Like, you know, they shot that spaceship off from the middle of the ocean. That's neat. <laughs> like, <laughs> and I never, I never got as hooked or invested and you know, maybe it's not for me, but I, I think I'd like the world enough to want to maybe give it a, a, a better shot of getting my full attention by maybe watching it at a more reasonable hour. Mm hmm. I, I know people reacted favorably to the finale. People, it seemed like everyone was like, oh, whoa, like this thing, whatever. I, you know, I haven't seen the show. So it seems like people were pretty high on it. So it does, it does, it does some interesting things. And it really, um, it, they, they really set up an interesting premise for the next season. Just with like throwaway, not a throwaway, but like, you know, just a special effect shot and a needle drop and really kind of like set the stage for where things are going. And it's really, uh, I mean, who knows? I mean, it could have potential to get really, you know, literally out there depending on how far they want to push this alternate space race and how much they want to play with, with real versus imagined technology and stuff, which is interesting because they do, they bring in a lot of, you know, like I mentioned, there's a, uh, a spaceship that launches from the middle of the ocean, which was a scrapped concept that they had that, you know, someone had thought up to sort of launch rockets from the middle of the ocean instead of from, from, you know, land-based launch pads. And so, yeah, they're playing around with not even just alternate history, but almost like scrapped history, which is kind of interesting. Interesting. In general. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, cool. Uh, so I, I watched um, this show called Fosse Verdon from 2019. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I believe it was on the FX network. Um, and I bring it up because, um, you know, we've talked about Bob Fosse on the show. He directed Cabaret. Uh, we're both fans of that. And I, I, I've kind of been fascinated with Fosse in general, um, he's only made five movies, and I did watch the remaining movies of his that I hadn't seen this year, which are all really interesting in different ways. And Fosse Verdon is about him and um, his his wife, and and, and eventually his ex wife um, Michelle. Well, Michelle uh, played by Michelle Williams, and her name was Gwen Verdon. And it's really about their dynamic and how much she influenced him and helped him. Uh, with cabaret and directing and pulled him out of spiraling depression and how he mistreated her and 
he was a su- had a substance abuse problem and cheated on her multiple times and he was a bit of a womanizer and uh, a lot of the uh, elements of this uh, Fosse Verdon are, are present in all that jazz which is a, a, re- a remarkable movie uh, but yeah, it was it was interesting. Great performances by both Sam Rockwell and Michelle Williams. I don't think it could really, I don't think anything could really live up to the visual language of a Bob Fosse movie. Because as we've talked about with Cabaret, he's such a distinctive visual director in a lot of his movies. Although they are musicals and feature lots of dance numbers, this is sort of like uh it's like that line between like this is sexy and this is scary or this is terrifying you know uh and you kind of get a bit of his origin of why he's like that because he grew up uh around prostitutes and supposedly uh you know he was really really young when uh, his virginity was taken from him by a prostitute so i, I guess you'd call that rape uh, the way he talks about it he wouldn't frame it that way i, I suppose i don't know i, I probably he had a very complex youth, let's say sure. that, and it informed a lot of his work. Um, but so it's a great show. It's really interesting. As far as modern shows, um, I've taught, mentioned this show to you, um, but I really fell for the show Servant. And I don't, again, I, I bring it up because I don't think enough people are talking about it. That's on Apple TV Plus as well. Um, M. Night Shyamalan is a, a, a producer for it. He directs a lot of episodes, but he's bringing a lot of great directors um, from like... Uh, foreign horror, horror films and stuff like that. And it does have this real European sensibility in its visual language. And it's just so rare to see a TV show that has like a distinct visual language, you know, like obviously Breaking Bad is Better Call Saul, maybe Mad Men, where you know by their camera choices and movement and stuff like that, like that it's distinctively that show. And and Servant is very much that. Um, Lauren Ambrose and and... Toby Kebbell play a couple uh, and they're trying to have a child. Unfortunately, uh, due to, to some complications, um, um, they lose their 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 little son uh, when he was an infant. And Lauren Ambrose's character is having trouble uh, dealing with the 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 grief. So they get like a surrogate baby for her, which she treats as her own. And then they get... Um, a live-in nanny to take care of the surrogate baby played by Nell Tiger Free. She has some unexplained mysterious powers and the baby comes to life. Uh, oh, so the surrogate, the surrogate baby is not like a foster. It's like a doll. No, it's a doll. Yeah, it's a, it's a doll. Yep. Lauren Ambrose brother is played by Rupert Grint, better known as um, Ron Weasley. Uh, and, but everything takes place in their home, which is uh, this, um, kind of lavish Victorian style house um, in DC. Uh, every, every episode takes place in the house. They never oh, leave the house. That's and cool. That was sort of M. Knight's mandate for the show. Like, we're never going to leave the house. Um, but everything is kind of done with like wide shots and, and everything's kind of on tripods. So the camera's always locked down and it's very purposeful movements and fascinating angles from from perspectives you don't usually see. It's really well lit. It's a, such a beautiful show, and uh, it just finished up its second season. Uh, it's pretty dark. Um, it can get kind of heavy at times, but I think it takes the notion of of um, postpartum depression and grief pretty seriously. Um, and, and you know, I don't want to get into too much spoilers, but uh, I do think 
it, it, it kind of, you know, it could potentially be uh, uh, get into some complex ideas that I think it does a, a nice job of, of handling without blaming anyone for, for heavy stuff. Sure. I'm, I'm sort of talking, talking around things uh, a bit abstractly because I don't want to spoil it. Um, but um, it, it makes sense when you see it. Um, I really like it and, and I'm excited for the next season. It's very weird. Um, I think Shyamalan uh, has kind of got a handle on what he does best. He doesn't write this in particular, but it still has that kind of arch um, dialogue where things are, everything's a bit heightened. Mm-hmm. Uh, people talk around subjects, but I think it works for the context of this. And uh, it's just freaky and weird and, and has some really great visuals. Uh, yeah, servant. So. Cool. Yeah, I definitely want to check that out. Um, and and also for my last one, um, um, the Invincible show on Amazon, which is adaptation oh, yeah. of the Robert Kirkman, Ryan Otley, and Corey Walker comic book, uh, is terrific. Especially in that it it takes a lot of elements from the series, um, which I I read the entirety of this year as well, uh, and and. I don't want to say fixes things, but deepens things. And it, it does a good job of recasting some characters, adding some diversity, but doing it in a smart way, um, which heightens sort of the immigrant experience, which, which which I would never say was a factor of the show, but has now become a part of the show because of its diverse casting. Sure. Yeah, yeah. It's great. It's super, super violent. Uh, the animation is really good, though. Um, and um, there's enough changes from the comic to keep you on your toes. Um, I'm pretty sure you've read some of the comics, so I think you know the big yeah. twist that yeah. happens. And unfortunately, I feel like the first season, like uh, the comic dispenses with the twist pretty quickly. Um, and the, the show uses it more as like, the, the the aftermath of the twist, the repercussions of the twist, uh, they take their time with. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure if that was a great decision or if that was just me being impatient because I've, I've read the comic. Um, but it's good. It's worth watching. I think there was eight episodes and I know they're coming back for another season. Um, so yeah, it's fun. Nice. Fun. Yeah, it's sort of like, I've almost pulled the trigger on it a few times, so maybe I'll, maybe I'll take the dive. It's it's pretty cool, and the voice cast is great. Um, Stephen Yun and um, J.K. Simmons. He's and, great. He's um, great in everything. He's got like such a perfect voice for animation. Yeah, he really does. He plays um, his dad, he, right? He plays Mark's dad. Mark is the main character that's played by Stephen Yun, and um, Walton Goggins is in it. He plays nice. um, the FBI agent Cecil Stedman. He's pretty great. Seth Rogen is Alan the Alien, uh, which is pretty fun. Who else? Who's his mom? I'm trying to find his mom because she's really great. Oh yeah, Sandra O oh plays his mom, and so. Oh cool. Um, yeah, it's it's um, there's some when I when I reread the comic this year, I was like, oh, there's a lot of good stuff, and anytime something um, wasn't working for me, it just moved quick enough where you'd like, okay, I could forget that. But the comic could, could be pretty sexist at times. Uh, and the, the the show does a good job of kind of addressing those things and, and trying to correct those um, problems. And Kirkman is part of the 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 he, like he's one of the screenwriters for the for the series. So it's interesting to see him kind of take something that he did and, and like and not be precious about it, you know, um, and, and, and 
to change it and update it for a modern audience. Nice. Yeah. And I've always sort of liked when creators can be very malleable, like, you know, you know, Douglas Adams rewrote Hitchhiker's Guide like four or five different ways because, you know, the radio show is different from the TV show, from the book, from the text adventure game. Um, yeah. You know, you got to it's not not just because it worked as a comic doesn't mean it's going to work as a TV show. So it's nice that he's uh, involved and willing to to do the hard work to to make adjustments. I think that about does it. Do you have any anything else that um, you're excited about or or anything else you've watched, listened to, read, whatever? I mean, the big one, and I think we talked about doing an episode maybe, is I just finished um, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Oh, nice, uh, nice. Several years late to the party there, but man, uh, I think I sunk about 90 hours into it by the time I, you know, I haven't, you know, I haven't done all of the shrines and all the side quests, but I figured at, at 90 hours, it was time to put on Link's big boy pants and... <laughs> save the save the kingdom yeah i don't want to talk too much about it because either we're going to talk about it in an episode or there's nothing new to bring to the table here it was great uh, the last zelda game i thought was kind of a dud i really did not enjoy the skyward sword and i saw people getting excited about it being ported to switch and don't know what game they played i thought it was really dull and it run out of gas but man this really kind of uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's these legacy franchises need that every few years, really shake things up. So yeah, it was great. Uh, I don't regret a minute of sinking 90 hours in that game. <laughs> I earned it. I did it at night after my children were in bed. Yeah. How about you? Any, any other, um, miscellaneous items? Yeah. Uh, I really dig this album by this band called the armed. The album's called ultra pop. Um, uh, it's sort of, uh, this post-hardcore, it's hard to describe, and I think that's why I like it. It's just a noisy, abrasive, but also uh, has moments of like pop uh, confection and, and like walls of noise, and sometimes it's hard to find your place in all of it, um, but there are lots of hooks, and it's really surprised me. Uh, I really dug that. And another record by... Um, this artist called Floating Points. Uh, he's an electronic artist, um, but he teamed up with this um, uh, saxophonist named Pharaoh Sanders, and uh, they made an album with the London Symphony Orchestra. I almost said orchestra. The London Symphony Orchestra. Uh, the album's called uh, Promises. And it's a lot of... Um, it kind of like introduces uh, a melody... And then it will do slight variations on that for a while. And then the next song is the same melody again and then different variations and keeps building. And so it's like this constantly shifting big musical piece and it's it's beautiful and it's a great kind of, it's that kind of background album where you can, it can be a passive listen, but if you really pay attention to it, it's very rewarding. Um, it's really cool. But yeah, there's a lot of other stuff coming out later this year or soon that I'm excited about. Um, hopefully at the end of the year, we can do more music stuff. And maybe this year we can uh, do a whole focus like Tony gets caught up on 2021 music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's good for an annual episode, I think. <laughs> yeah, I think so. It's fun. It's fun to do. Um, yeah, it's hard. There's so much music again. and, and um, But I've got a lot of stuff uh, saved up and because um, I've been listening to a lot of older stuff. 
Um, but yeah, those those two records in, in general are pretty good. Uh, um, yeah, I recommend those. I think that about does it. Um, you, you good? I'm good. So what are we doing next time? Uh, we're talking about Hellboy. And in particular, we're talking about the final arc in the comic book series, Hellboy, uh, called Hellboy in Hell. Hellboy is not a blind spot for either of us, but uh, we both had not written it. Uh, neither of us had f- read this, you know, the final story. I mean, he's done, there have been Hellboy comics since Hellboy in Hell that sort of take place bopping around the timeline. That's the nature of the comic lends itself to infinite monster hunting adventures. But this is, this is where the right hand of doom comes to an end. Uh, so yeah, so I, I think yeah, this is where the mythology gets wrapped. Yeah. Up. So we're, we're, I'm excited. I haven't started reading it yet because I, I did blow through some other Hellboy stuff to catch up and, and immediately like only remember the broad stroke. So same. Yeah. I read everything. Like everything that came out before Hellboy and Hell, I've read everything. All the short stories, and the and, and every comic that has to do with with the mythology and whatnot. Um, but I was waiting for Hellboy and Hell, Hell until like like right before we record, so it's fresh in in my memory. Yeah. yeah. But I'm cool. excited to talk about it. I love Mike Mignola, the creator. I love his artwork so much. Um, and. I can't wait to really talk about why I like his artwork and what makes him so distinctive and why it's really hard for any other artist to replicate the character Hellboy. Uh, And also, now that I've had all this Hellboy under my belt, um, I think it'll be fun to really talk about the differences between the comic and Guillermo del Del Toro's movies. And um, maybe, I don't want to say what he got wrong, but um, how he branches off and why his movies are more him than they are uh, Mike Bignola's Hellboy. For me, I would say where it goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well, then maybe there'll there'll also be a spirited defense of the Hellboy movies because I think I think they're good movies. Um, cool. Even if they're not entirely, um, they don't entirely nail what I love about the Hellboy comics. Yeah. Great. Oh, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, it should be a fun one. Um, Please listen to it. Um, and again, go listen to our Usagi Yojimbo episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. We have to plug that every week. Yeah. We're going to plug it every week until you people listen to it. Go listen to our Usagi. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> you know, listen to what you want to listen to. You know, we, we're, we're just giving you episodes. and Yeah. And, Usagi yeah. won't take it personally. Gen he would have yeah. want to have words with you. Yeah. So what if he's the coolest samurai rabbit in 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 you're showing your ignorance if you decide to not no i'm just kidding you're, all right you're trying um, you're trying you're trying too hard we're not gonna I'm we're going not gonna win far. them over this way we're not gonna win them over this way um but thank you for listening to the muppets and fiona apple and what else superstore superstore yeah. yeah so whew, lots of good stuff coming up i think yeah i think cool. so all right i'll see you next time bye bye Thanks for listening to another episode of What Did We Miss? You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook at What Did We Miss? And you can send us an email at whatdidwemisspod at gmail.com. And thanks, as always, to the What Cheer Writers Club in downtown Providence, Rhode Island. You can learn more about them at whatcheerclub.org. And you can follow them on Twitter and Instagram at whatcheerclub.org.